Good afternoon. It's good to be back with you. I was uh, traveling in the States with Pastor Mark at a pastor's conference, and then he gave me COVID. And so I've been in quarantine for the last two weeks. Missed the last two Sundays. Uh, by God's grace, my family's all recovered. Really appreciate your prayers. Uh, many of you cared for us very well. Um, today we're going to be in Titus chapter 3, verses 1 to 17. Or 1 to 7, excuse me, 1 to 7. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. Uh, I'm not sure if you've heard of one of the greatest generals of all time. His name was Napoleon Bonaparte, born in 1769. He was a brilliant general, probably one of history's greatest leaders. He laid the foundation for education in France. He served as the first emperor of France. He fought in over, 50, uh, over 80 battles, and he was nearly invincible. He won over 70 of those. He lost only nine. It's quite a record. Now, at the Hotel uh, Les Vanzalidades, that's in Paris, France. That's French. It shows I don't know French also. Uh, if you go to that hotel, there stands a 200-year-old statue of Napoleon. Now, the sculptor took the cannons of Napoleon's enemies to craft this statue, which says a little bit about Napoleon right there. It, if you look at it, he stands there. Napoleon has his hand in his coat pocket and his chest, and he has a smug look on his face. The sculptor, the sculptor captured the attitude of probably one of the most accomplished men in history. Here's the attitude. Somebody said this about him. They said it's the personification or the embodiment of this attitude. I did this. I did this. That was Napoleon's attitude. All those accomplishments, all those battles fought and won. I did this. Now it's etched in stone for generations to see. Now if a sculptor uh, crafted a statue of you, what would we see? What would be your posture? How would you be standing? What would be your attitude? Imagine your facial expression, your demeanor. Would you be smug in your accomplishments? Maybe you'd be striving to earn favor. Friends, in Titus chapter 3, we are confronted and comforted with this reality about our salvation. None of us can say like Napoleon, I did this. Salvation is by God's grace, not by good works. Turn to Titus 3, let me read verses 1 to 7. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, 
He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, we need your grace and your mercy to understand this text. We need to understand our desperate condition apart from Jesus Christ. We need to be shocked once again by your goodness and your loving kindness. You are merciful. You are gracious. And we have hope because you transform sinners into saints by the blood of Jesus Christ. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. I love how John Calvin summarizes this passage. He says, we bring nothing to God, but he goes before us by his pure grace without any regard to works. We bring nothing, we get grace. Here's how I would say it. Here's the main point of this passage. We're saved by God's grace, not because of good works, but for good works. We're saved by God's grace, not because of good works, but for good works. Three points in this sermon. The first one is simple, good works. Look at verses 1 and 2. Good works. Notice how Paul begins with this command. One command in this passage. He says, remind them. Paul tells Titus to do this one thing. It's to remind them of things that they already know. Friends, that's so much of the Christian life, isn't it? Being reminded of things that you already know. Titus is to remind the church, and then there's this list of good works. That's the rest of verses 1 and 2. Seven things to remind them of. Seven commands. To be submissive to rulers and authorities. That's the first thing. To be obedient, second. To be ready for every good work, third. Speak evil of no one, fourth. To avoid quarreling, the fifth thing. Sixth, be gentle. And lastly, show perfect courtesy toward all people. Friends, this is not complicated. It's not rocket science. It's the fruit of the gospel. Basic Christian living. John Stott says that all Christian teachers are to take pains to make old truths new and stale truths fresh. So friends, I have nothing original to say in this sermon, but I'm going to remind you of old truths, truths you probably already know. So think about this list. Has anything here become stale to you? What good works have you forgotten about? Paul begins with submission. Now in chapter 2, if you remember, Paul told Titus, wives are to submit to husbands and slaves are to submit to masters. Here we see that all Christians are to be submissive. We're all to submit to the government. God's created order includes authority and submission. Now what submission? It's following the rules even when you disagree with them. 
pretty straightforward. Christians are always to submit to the government. One exception, when man's law contradicts God's law. Other than that, we're to submit. Next, if you look, Paul says we're to be obedient. We're going to move quickly through these as there's seven. He's probably referring to being obedient to governing authorities. He's certainly referring to being obedient to God himself. And keep in mind, that's not just following the rules. God sees our hearts. He knows when we're doing um, begrudging obedience, when we're obeying even when we don't really want to. Or he knows when we're obeying from sinful motives, trying to get something from God. Then Paul says, be ready for every good work. Now here we're seeing a theme of the book of Titus, good works. Paul said in chapter 1, false teachers, they are unfit for good works. In chapter 2, he told Titus, Titus, you're to be a model of good works. In chapter 2, we also learn that Jesus Christ redeemed us to be a people who are zealous for good works. Are you noticing a theme here? You, Christian, are to be ready for every good work. That simply means you're to be ready, willing to do whatever is needed to be done. And God has prepared unique, individual good works for all of us to walk in every single day. Are you ready? Are you ready for that? In verse 2, Paul says, we must speak evil of no one. So remember back to chapter 1, Cretans were notoriously liars, but the truth of the gospel transformed their tongues. No gossip, no slander, no biting, no talking behind people's backs. It's not just what we say, that's the content, but it's also how we say it, our tone. It's also why we say it that matters. That's our motives. Our speech is to be fitting of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Along with this, Paul says they're to avoid quarreling. Friends, you know there's countless opportunities every day if you interact with any people for quarreling. Avoid them all. Christians, are your relationships marked by quarreling? Are you drawn towards arguments? Or do you avoid them? Husbands and wives, there's certainly application for us here. Are your marriages marked by constant little skirmishes, little battles throughout the day? I love what Charles Spurgeon said about quarreling. He said, you need to have a blind eye and a deaf ear. He said, you can't stop people's tongues. Therefore, the best thing is to stop your own ears and never mind what is spoken. There are some times where we just need to avoid and ignore. Instead, Paul says, be gentle. Be gentle. Don't be harsh with one another. Of course, we're reminded of Jesus Christ. He said of himself, I am gentle and lowly in heart. So as we think about gentleness, we're not to be harsh with one another. Jesus doesn't scold us. He doesn't yell at us. He doesn't assert himself over us. Instead, he invites us. And that's how we're to treat one another. Last on the list, Paul says, show perfect courtesy toward all people. So Paul began this list with how we're to interact with rulers and authorities. Here he shifts to how we're to treat everyone. 
all people, every people we meet, we're to treat them with dignity, with honor. So think about the sheikh. He's to be treated with perfect courtesy. Now that's kind of a given. The policeman, perfect courtesy. The cashier, perfect courtesy. The teacher, the coworker, perfect courtesy. The bathroom attendant, perfect courtesy. Now it's easy to rush through our days, not even acknowledging the human beings we come in contact with, but we must remember to treat everyone with perfect courtesy because they're made in God's image. So we must treat them that way. Friends, this list isn't complicated. It's a list of the fruit of the gospel. It's what it looks like to live in light of the gospel. It's what it looks like to be a Christian. And so we as a church, Covenant Hope, we must ask ourselves, does this mark our church? Or have we become sluggish in doing good works? Could it be that quarreling has become common in our church? Do our words give grace? Are we gentle? Or do we speak evil? Are we guilty of gossip? Are there even some people in the church we favor over others? Paul told Titus, remind them. Church, remember how we are to live. Titus, this book, it's all about how the truth produces transformation. The gospel itself creates godliness. It's the word of God that generates good works. That's point number one, good works. If you look in verse three, Paul then lists seven wicked works. So seven good works. In verse three, we have seven wicked works. Look at verse three. He says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. So if you think about verses one and two, Paul was saying, this is who we are to be, marked by good works. In verse three, Paul gives the reason or the grounds for his command. He says, for this is who we were. Christians, we're not just supposed to think about who we are to be, it's also necessary to remember who we once were before we met Jesus Christ. You know, years ago, I was teaching the kids' class at Covenant Hope. Uh, the lesson touched on our sinfulness as human beings. And um, the message apparently resonated with one little girl, and um, she's not here, she's no longer at the church, so you don't need to guess who it was. Uh, but she started talking to me. She's like, you know, my brother's a sinner. And she pointed at him. He was in the room. And he was nodding his head like, yeah. And she's like, he pushes me. He does this. He does that. And I couldn't even um, interrupt her right after I, she finished saying that. And she said, and my friend. And she went on about her friend's sinfulness. And soon I realized, you know, this girl has a very clear understanding of the doctrine of other people's sin. And I realized, I asked her, you know, um, you know, I said to her, all of us have done those things against God. And she looked at me so confused. Uh, she clearly did not understand. And, and she started shaking her head, no. 
And so I asked this little girl, I said, do you, do you not think that's true? And she said, no, I, I've never sinned against God. Now, obviously, that was false. But she didn't know that at the time. We were sitting in a little circle, and she started scooting away from the circle, slowly, a little by little. I had to ask her, hey, hey, you need to come back in the circle. And that was repeated throughout the, the lesson until her mom came. Finally, when her mom came, um, her mom said, you know, say goodbye to Michael. And I think my wife was there, Hannah. And she said goodbye, I think, to my wife. She would not say goodbye to me. She wouldn't even look at me. Uh, what happened there? I rocked that girl's world with biblical truth. She knew about other people's sin. She did not know or believe that she was a sinner. What's Paul doing here? He's grounding who we're supposed to be with who we once were. We were sinners. So we, friends, need to remember who we are. Let's look at this. Look at verse 3. He says, first, we're foolish. We lacked spiritual understanding. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. They take no pleasure in understanding. Fools are always right in their own eyes. Fools are reckless and careless. They say in their heart, there is no God. Paul says, we were foolish. Then he says, we were disobedient. Think back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve in the garden disobeyed God's one command. Every single person since were rebels. We break God's law. Then Paul says we were led astray. The world tempted us. Satan tricked us. And in our own flesh, we wandered away from God. Isaiah says it this way. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. That's the picture the scriptures paint of us. Lost sheep that strayed from their shepherd. But the picture actually gets darker. Paul says, if you look there in verse 3, he says, we were slaves, slaves to various passions and pleasures. If you consider the slavery in the world today, there's over 27 million slaves today. And I cannot imagine how horrible it would be to suffer as a slave, yet we have to remember that slavery to sin is eternally worse. Sin was our master. We were in bondage to dead and helpless idols. Christian, do you remember what it was like to be in bondage to your sin? How hopeless you were. How helpless you were. Paul says we passed our days in malice and envy. How do we pass our time? We wished evil upon other people, and we coveted their good. We couldn't even bear to think about someone else's prosperity or someone else's success. And hatred marked our relationships. He says we were hated by others. What did other people think of us? They hated us. What did we think of other people? Paul says, well, we hated them. We were enemies of God and enemies of one another. 
now we have to ask ourselves, why? Why did Paul go through this effort to be so explicit about who we used to be? Maybe you read this list of seven sins and you kind of feel a little beat up. But if you're a Christian, think about this. This list is for your encouragement. Because there's a contrast between these two lists. Seven good works, seven wicked works, who you were before Christ, who you are today because of Jesus Christ. A night and day difference. Friend, if you're not a Christian, let me ask you, how do you consider yourself? How do you think about yourself? There's no way to soften this truth. Verse 3 is describing you today. You're even worse than you think you are. You're a sinner who's rebelled against God and you've hated your neighbor. Maybe you're thinking, no, Michael, you don't know me personally. I'm not that bad. Uh, I know lots of people worse than me. I try to be a good person. And I understand that. But what does God think of you? That's verse 3. How do you measure up against His holiness, against God's standard? You're a sinner who needs salvation. You need transformation that cannot come within you. It can only come from God Himself. And friends, that's exactly what the last point is about. We've seen good works. We've seen wicked works. The last point is God's work. God's work. Look at verses 4 through 7. It's the only thing separating believers from unbelievers. God's work. Look at verse 4. Paul says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Paul says, verse 3, Yes, you were a sinner, but look at God's gracious character. This is who you were. This is what you did. This is who God is. This is what God's done. Friend, this is one of the clearest and richest explanations of our salvation. Paul tells us when God saved us. Then he says why God saved us. Then he says how God saved us. And then he goes back again to why God saved us. When did God save us? Look at verse, look at verse 4. He says, when the goodness and the loving kindness of God appeared. If you remember last week in, uh, in uh, chapter 2, Paul said the grace of God appeared. He was talking about Jesus Christ. Here he says the goodness of God, the loving kindness of God. 2,000 years ago, grace and goodness and the loving kindness of God walked the earth. His name was Jesus Christ. The exact opposite of verse 3. Jesus walked in the wisdom of God. He always obeyed. He never departed from God. He was never a slave to sin because he never sinned. His days 
were marked with compassion and love. He hated no one and loved everyone. And Jesus was sent by God the Father to save God's people from their sins. Friends, to save us, He bore our sins on the cross. He was punished in our place. And He rose, as we recited in the Apostles' Creed, in victory over sin three days later. The chains of sin, broken. The head of Satan, crushed. This is God, our Savior. This is Jesus Christ. And we have to ask, why? Why did God do this? Why did God save us? It's the question at the very heart of the gospel. Is the answer because we earned our salvation? Is it because we were good people? Is it because we just did our best? Verse 5 answers all of these questions with an emphatic no. It's none of that. Look at verse 5. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. What good news, friends. We didn't just need help. We didn't just need a hand or a push in the right direction. We needed salvation, and he saved us. Not because of what we've done, but because of who he is. Have you considered, Christian, this great salvation you have in Jesus Christ? Friend, you couldn't log enough hours to earn this salvation. There is no amount of good deeds you could do for God to save your soul. None of us can say, I did this. God did this. Salvation belongs to God. And how did God save us? How did he save us? Look, look back there. Paul zooms in on the work of the Holy Spirit by the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit. What did God do? He did heart surgery. He gave us new hearts. He gave us new birth. He transformed us by the Holy Spirit. Now, all of this should not have been surprising to God's people. It was prophesied and promised throughout the Old Testament. Ezekiel said, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Or Joel, as we read earlier in the service. Joel said, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Think about those two things. A new heart, a new spirit, Joel says that God promised to pour out the Spirit on us. Paul says God poured out richly, the measure richly on us through Jesus Christ. Friends, that's a dramatic reversal. You saw verse 3. You saw who we were, and you know what we deserved. If you look in the book of Ezekiel, it's amazing. The language of poured out, it's always in reference to God's wrath poured out on sinners. Here, Paul is conflating Ezekiel and Joel and saying, instead of God's wrath poured out on you, you get God's spirit. Instead of retribution, you get regeneration and renewal. 
And this is all ours through Jesus Christ. So again, verse 7, we have to ask, why? Why did God do this? Look at verse 7. Paul tells us the reason. So that, being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Friends, if you're a Christian, you deserved judgment. Because of Jesus Christ, you get justification. You were guilty before God. Because of Jesus Christ, you're declared righteous by God. Friend, you were an enemy of God. Because of Christ, you're now an heir. Think about that unpayable debt you had. Because of Christ, you have an untouchable inheritance. You were dead. It doesn't get much worse than that. Because of Jesus Christ, you have eternal life. That's God's purpose in your salvation. This is amazing. This is God's triune work in your salvation. The Father sent the Son to save us. The Son died in our place and was resurrected. Then the Father and the Son spent, sent the Spirit to indwell us. This is grace, friends. This is who God is. He's full of goodness. He's full of loving kindness. He's full of mercy and grace and hope. And friend, if you're not a Christian, you've heard the bad news already. You're a sinner. You need salvation. This part is the good news. God is gracious. He saves sinners. So here's what you need to do. Nothing. There's nothing you can do. That's the whole point. Jesus did everything in your place. You can't pay for your salvation with good works. But, friend, you can trust in Christ in that free gift of salvation and justification by grace. It's yours. Place your hope in Jesus Christ. And Christians, the gospel is good news for us every single day. It's a reminder that we're saved by God's grace, not because of good works, but it's also a reminder that we're saved for good works. Grace, it's the fuel for our good works. Works, they're the fruit of God's grace. So ask yourself, am I, as a Christian, working from God's favor, or am I trying to earn God's favor? Are you living by grace, or are you living by works? Friends, from my own life, I can tell you there is a great temptation to begin the Christian life knowing it's salvation by grace alone, in Christ alone, and then shifting over time to, but I think I need to earn my salvation too. I need to at least keep it up. I need to maintain it. Maybe, friend, you've been caught in this cycle yourself. For much of my Christian life, I was, I was disappointed. I felt frustrated. I felt like God was frustrated with me because I wasn't living up to his expectations for me. I didn't realize at the time that my relationship with God was based on my performance for God, not on God's grace. So when I perform well, you know, when I read my Bible, I prayed, I shared the gospel, I fought sin, in some measure I expected God's blessing on my life. When I perform poorly, 
you know, when I slept in, didn't read my Bible, forgot to pray, didn't share the gospel with anyone, and was struggling in sin, I felt discouraged and distant, like God was looking down upon me, like I needed to clean myself up. But, you know, Paul calls us in this section to a better way. I love what Jerry Bridges says about this. He says, it's a call to get off the performance treadmill. Living by grace instead of by works means you're free from the performance treadmill. It means, and this is amazing, I know some students in here just did their finals, it means that God gives you an A when you deserved an F. Now, I don't think they do that in university. That's what God does. It means if you've only worked for an hour that day, He gives you a full day's pay. That's grace. It means you don't have to perform certain spiritual disciplines, reading your Bible, praying, sharing the gospel, to earn God's approval. The reason being because Christ has already earned God's approval for you. It means that you're loved and you're accepted by God through the merit, not of your good works, but because of Jesus Christ. So nothing, nothing, nothing you ever do will cause God to love you any more or any less. That's the gospel. He loves you strictly by His grace, not by your works. So think about Jesus on the cross. Remember what he said. He said, it is finished. Can you add to Christ's holy work on the cross by your good works? No. So as you think about reading your Bible, friend, read your Bible. But don't do it to earn God's favor. As you think about praying, friend, pray. But don't do it to merit God's love. As you think about sharing the gospel, share the gospel, but not for God's approval. That's what life looks like when you step off the performance treadmill of Christianity and you rest. You rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. As we think back on this this section, remember Paul front-loaded seven commands in verses one and two. Seven things that Paul said, Titus, remind the church of these things. It's not that grace produces a workless Christianity. That's actually not at all what's the case. It's that the gospel is the grounds. It's the reason for good works. Imagine how freeing it is to be told by God, you cannot earn your salvation. It's given freely. Freely. Now go do good works. So remember those good works that God's called you to walk in. What were they? Submit to the government? Be obedient? Be ready to do whatever is needed? Speak no evil? Avoid fighting? Be gentle? Be courteous to all people? Paul also says, remember who you once were and those wicked works you once did so that you can remember the power and the wonder of God's amazing grace. God's work. Paul calls us friends. He says, do good works, not because you're saved by good works, but because you're saved by God's grace. Christian, think to that last day. We're going to stand before Christ. We're going to receive that hoped for eternal life. None of us will say on that day, I did this. All of us will say, 
God did this. Let's pray. God, you are gracious to us, gracious to save us. You are merciful. You are good. You are kind. You are loving. We are amazed at your amazing grace. Help us now to walk in the good works that you have for us and to live grace-based lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, let's sing with joy, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Please stand.